You know, one thing I think people are going to start talking about a lot more is climate change and rising humidity levels. So everybody knows temperature levels are rising around the world, but with that humidity levels are rising. Even on the West Coast here, we can feel higher humidity. And most of the energy for air conditioning is actually not cooling, it's dehumidification. Welcome to another episode of The Net Zero Life. I'm your host, Nathan Svee, and I'm working to share the lessons and philosophies from leaders working in climate so you can live a sustainable life that brings the world closer to net zero emissions. For those of you who are joining us for the first time, welcome. This community is continuing to grow week over week, whether it's wave energy that gets you excited, carbon accounting, or today when we're talking about HVAC. It's been a pleasure to help move the world closer to net zero emissions with you. If you want to support our work and help us grow the community even more, giving us a rating on Apple Podcasts or following us on Spotify helps us broaden our outreach. Today on the show, I'm speaking with James Dean, founder and CEO of Oxygenate. Oxygenate is a clean energy technology company developing products that improve the health, comfort, and energy efficiency of buildings. James is a clean tech entrepreneur with a passion for innovation, product development, healthy buildings, and sustainability. He has a Bachelor's of Science in Civil Engineering from the University of Waterloo and an MBA from the University of Western Ontario. Equally committed to the environment in his personal life, James recently built West Vancouver's first net zero energy passive house, which was named North America's most innovative home in 2020. During the interview, James and I discuss his net zero energy passive house, his lessons from 20 years of starting and selling companies, how individuals can affect building codes in their cities and counties, and of course, how Oxygenate is moving the world closer to net zero emissions while also making buildings more healthy by electrifying building ventilation. Before we jump into the episode, a quick message from Climate People, our favorite climate-focused recruiting agency. Climate People is an incredible recruiting agency working to connect mission-driven talent with companies fighting climate change. Whether you're a candidate looking to build software that helps sequester carbon, or a founder looking to hire engineers, Climate People can take care of your talent acquisition needs so you can focus on bringing the world closer to net zero emissions. Climate People is also looking to hire recruiters so they can place even more talented people in roles that help move the world closer to net zero emissions. If you or someone you know is interested in recruiting for the top climate-focused recruiting agency, get in touch with Climate People founder Brendan Anderson via email brendan at climatepeople.com. I'm incredibly excited to bring this episode to your ears. You may notice that throughout the episode I struggled with the word oxygenate. Tough word, what can I say? Oxygenate is growing like a software developer's REI dividend in the 2020s, and Oxygenate's work is key to reducing the energy use of buildings from 6% of total global emissions today to less than one-tenth of a percent by 2050. Without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with James Dean, CEO and founder of Oxygenate. James, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining today. Nathan, thanks for having me. And yeah, I was quite excited when you reached out and asked me to join the Net Zero Life podcast. Yeah, well, uh, you sum me up perfectly because uh, you are a perfect candidate, one, because you're in the field, and two, because you have a net zero house, which uh, I'd love to start with. So this is from an article online. Uh, James built a net zero energy passive house in West Vancouver, BC for his family, demonstrating that beautiful design can come together with energy efficiency, comfort, and health. Tell me more. Yeah, it was interesting. My wife and I, we'd lived on this property for 20 years and um, yeah, had this vision of building our own home. And I'd learned about Passive House from a, a company I'd worked for before that was quite active in Germany in the Passive House. 
And when I when I read about it, it, it wasn't that complicated. It was, you know, put a bit more insulation in the walls, you know, make it really airtight. You do this test called a blower door test to see how much leakage you have in your windows and doors. You know, try to orient the home to take advantage of the sun. So ideally you want your glazing to face southwest. So in the spring and the fall, you can use the sun to heat it up. You know, have big overhangs and decks to block the sun in the summertime. Uh, no thermal bridging. So if you've got, you know, let's say a concrete deck or a wood deck, you don't want the heat or cool to pass through the slab. And then lastly, because it's so airtight, you want a mechanical ventilation system with heat recovery, which is what uh, my current company, Oxygen 8, does. So, And what, what was interesting, Nathan, when, when we started building the house, it was all about energy efficiency. And then we just learned so much more along this journey of uh, building this, this cool house. Yeah, one of the things that I saw in the article was you guys used um, cross-laminated timber, which is also kind of reduces the waste from the manufacturing process as well. When you were building the house, how involved were you in kind of the zero waste, energy efficiency, all that stuff? Or you kind of just said, hey, build me an zero house and tell me the details later. Yeah, being an engineer, I was pretty active, probably more active than the, the average uh, kind of homeowner. Uh, but I'd say both our builder and our architect brought a lot of great ideas to us. And one was this idea of cross-laminated timber. You know, at the time, you know, I did it because it was kind of cool. Um, it took a couple of months off the construction schedule. I just thought the house would be a lot more robust being built with these solid wood panels. And, and afterwards, I learned this, this new term. I love learning new things. And, and this term called embodied carbon, which I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with. And so the first floor is concrete, and then the second and third are CLT panels. And that, you know, concrete is is bad when you look at all the, you know, carbon that goes into producing it and transporting it, where wood, not only does it have much less carbon in the whole manufacturing process, but it actually has negative embodied carbon from all the CO2 that, you know, the trees are, you know, absorbing through the, through the life. So, yeah, that was sort of a big learning for me. And I was like, well, why didn't we do the whole house in CLT instead of just two, two of the three floors? So, Do you have any oxygen equipment inside your house? Uh, no, we've got D point, uh, the D point heat exchanger in the Zender system, which is our ERV system here. But yeah, the oxygenate right now is mainly for, uh, commercial buildings. We just launched a residential, it's for multi-unit residential. Um, so I've got one down in my garage that I'm putting in my friends, um, uh, her daughter's in a kind of garage suite and she's like, James, the air is really bad in here. Can I have an oxygenate system? So I'm going to be installing that in, uh, in their garage for them. So what is Passive House as an organization? I, I was new, it was new to me when I was reading up about it. And what were the requirements you had to hit in order to kind of qualify as a net zero Passive House? Yeah, so Passive House, it's a, I guess what people call a labeling program. So it'd be similar to, you know, LEED uh, for energy efficiency in buildings. Or you may have heard of the WELL building standard for healthy buildings. So it came out of Germany and Austria, um, and it was a labeling program mainly around energy efficiency. And the, the key metric is, how much energy are you using for heating and cooling? And so you need to be less than 15 kilowatt hours per square meter per year, I think is the, the measure. And then the second test they do is that blower door test. Um, and then there's a bunch of other boxes that you have to check. And so you get a, a plaque outside your building that shows you you meet the passive house standard. And what's interesting when you look in Germany now, you know, passive house has started to decline because the German building codes have now kind of met the passive house equivalent. So people are like, well, why do I need the labeling program when you got to build this to code anyways? 
where we're now seeing passive house taking um, taking ground in North America. So Vancouver, where I'm from, Toronto, a little bit in Seattle, New York, uh, Pittsburgh. Um, we're seeing a really strong passive house movement there. And we're going to get into building codes later. Uh, we've got a bunch of stuff to ask about that. Um, you kind of touched on it, uh, you know, being an engineer, curious about your journey to where you are now and, and how things have changed. So you started your career as an engineer, then at some point you go to MBA school. And I think by like 30-ish, you're already a partner at KPMG. And then, so like kind of like top of the game, 30, early 30s, and then you leave all that to go to a startup. What were you thinking? Like, what what was the inspiration to do that? Yeah, it's, it's funny, Nathan, you know, in life, you know, we make these decisions that send us down certain paths, not really knowing where it's going to take us. Um, the analogy I use, it's a little like you ever seen that movie with Gwyneth Paltrow called Sliding Doors, where she's running for the, the subway. And then in, in one scene, she makes it and she ends up having one sort of life. And the other, she doesn't make the train and she has a completely sort of different life. And, you know, so for me, I was living in Toronto, had a great life, was working for this consulting firm. But one day I just woke up and was a little bit bored and wanted to kind of shake it up. So I was going to move to San Francisco. And then the firm said, hey, we had an opportunity for you in Vancouver. Didn't know anybody. Moved out, met my wife my third day in Vancouver, uh, which was amazing. Met my uh, a guy who ended up becoming my business partner in a hydrogen fuel cell company. Um, but my first client at KPMG was this uh, company called Ballard Power Systems. I don't know if you have heard of them before. They were sort of the pioneer in hydrogen fuel cells. And so I was doing some consulting for them. And so they exposed me to, you know, sustainability and the ability to change the way we power buildings and cars and trucks and, and things like that. So that was sort of my first sort of exposure to, uh, to hydrogen fuel cells. And this is 2001-ish? Exactly. Yeah, late 90s, early 2000s. So did sustainability, I mean, this is really early in the game. I think at this point I was like, uh, I could age myself, I was like nine, right? Um, were you, uh, sustainability has just grown so much in the 20 years since. Did it something, was it something that resonated with you right away? Well, and how has sustainability changed since 1999 to 2021? It was completely new. You know, back in Toronto, it's probably a little bit like New York City where, it's more about business profitability. And I think, you know, me moving to the West Coast, you know, exposed me to sustainability. And you're right, it was it was still pretty early, 20, 20 years ago. But, you know, this company Ballard was on a rocket ship. You know, they were had like a billion dollar market cap. They were going to change the world, change the way people, you know, drove cars. And I got uh, got excited about sort of being part of that, uh, that movement. Um, so, you know, I always in my heart knew I wanted to become an entrepreneur, you know, had a great life working at KPMG, but quit my job. Uh, my business partner, he was an investment banker. He quit his job and we found a company on Vancouver Island that was making testing equipment for hydrogen fuel cells. And the analogy I use, it's a little bit like, you know, back in the days of the gold rush, you know, it wasn't the miners that were successful. It was, you know, the people selling the picks and the shovels and the maps and the, the Levi jeans. And um, yeah, so we were supplying, you know, Ballard and Toyota and Nissan, the, the testing equipment for testing these fuel cell stacks, which, which got us into that business. And then how did you transition out of that business into your next one? 
Yeah. So from the time that Dave and I joined, it was three, you know, amazing engineers, entrepreneurs um, from the time that Dave and I joined them to when we sold that business to one of our main competitors was 20 months. And I was like, oh, this entrepreneurship thing is easy. Um, and so then I went back to Ballard and they had developed this membrane technology for humidification it was one of the components in the fuel cell system. And I licensed that technology from them. And then I learned entrepreneurship isn't all that easy because from the time I started, that company was called D-Point to I sold it was about 15 years. So I learned that was when you're starting a company from scratch and you're you know doing fundamental R&D, um, it's not easy and takes a, a lot longer. And we, you know, shortly into starting that company, uh, the whole fuel cell market crashed. It was unbelievable. I had, you know, my Aunt Diane's retirement money invested in the company. I had my buddy's kids' education money, and we were literally on the verge of bankruptcy. And out of desperation, we had to find another application for this membrane. And I literally did a Google search, and my keywords were membranes, heat and humidity exchange, and discovered that Mitsubishi in Japan had developed this heat exchanger made of paper. And so I went back to my engineering team, and I was like, hey, do you think this polymer membrane that we licensed from Ballard can be used for energy recovery ventilation in buildings? So we hand-built a prototype, sent it off to an HVAC company, and they're like, wow, you guys are getting great efficiency, and there's a lot of benefits of the polymer versus the paper. And so we shifted gears into the HVAC business from, from fuel cells. And now, you know, when I look back, you hear of so many companies, um, you know, start down one path, they're not successful, but because they got on the train, they saw, you know, other opportunities end up becoming successful in, uh, in a different business. And so now is energy recovery kind of your, your baby and you, so you, you know, DuPont or DuPont or D-Point, <laughs> sorry, uh, you know, chemical company would be awesome if you started that, <laughs> although you'd have to be way, way, way older. Um, <clears throat> then you go to Core, right, which is also energy recovery. And then what happens in Core? And then how do you start Oxygen J where you are today? Yeah. So we ended up partnering up with a couple different companies. Let's see how my other big learning as uh, an entrepreneur is find great strategic partners. So one was a Swiss HVAC company called Zender. And I'll never forget, I was in Germany at an HVAC trade show, you know, walking around with my laptop bag and a piece of D-point membrane in there. And before I figured out who were the top 10 residential HVAC companies in Europe. And so I went by the Zender booth and the chief technology officer was there. And I said, hey, my name is James Dean from Vancouver. We've developed this membrane. And he's like, oh, James, your timing is impeccable. We're, we're testing membranes from around the world right now. And he said, can you send me a sample? And we did. They ended up um, uh, signing a supply agreement with us and then becoming a strategic investor and then ultimately bought D-Point in 2015. And when I think again, you know, going back to Gwyneth Paltrow and sliding doors, you know, had I not been at that, you know, HVAC trade show and met, you know, Rudy Creasy, you know, it would have been, been a different, uh, different story. And then I ended up staying on for three and a half years with Zender uh, running D-Point. We merged with another uh, Zender company and rebranded the company to Core Energy Recovery Solutions, which yeah, today is the number one energy recovery company and one of our key suppliers at Oxygenate, where we're buying the heat exchangers from. So let's get into what Oxygenate does. Like, How do you, for people, either a customer or you're like walking down the street and someone asks what you do, how do you explain what Oxygen does. And then also, you know, we're kind of going to get into HVAC a little bit as well and give us a little teaser for what Oxygen and um, how it relates into the HVAC industry. Sure. Yeah. So we make buildings healthy and comfortable by providing 100% fresh outside air, uh, but doing this in a low energy way using no carbon-based fuels. 
So, you know, another I love, as you can tell, Nathan love telling analogies, but my one is, I don't know if you've ever been to Vegas before and you hear that the Vegas casinos are like pumping oxygen in to kind of keep people alert and, you know, so they can stay up gambling all night long. When they're not really pumping oxygen in, what they're doing is pumping in larger amounts of air. So they have very high air change rates, which lowers the carbon dioxide level. So people are more alert. But the problem when you do that is if it's a really hot, humid day or cold, dry day, um, you're losing all that energy. And so using these high efficiency heat exchangers and these special fans called ECM fans, which are low energy and variable speed, um, we can provide this 100% fresh outside air in a, in a really low energy way. And for context, the you know the reason that we're chatting in terms of like getting the world to net zero emissions by 2050, building so International um, Energy Agency put out the report net zero uh, a few months ago, and in their report they say buildings use around five six percent of the energy today, and their path to decarbonization by 2050 and bringing that number down to like basically like less than a tenth of a percent is through technology that already exists and it's through electrification and energy efficiency both of which oxygenate do, right? And so I'm wondering if you can kind of just give us the, again, for, for people who aren't familiar, including myself, HVAC, what does it stand for? And then where is where does oxygenate play into that piece in terms of energy efficiency and electrification of a building? Okay, great. So yeah, HVAC stands for heating, ventilation, air conditioning. And I'd say we're mainly playing at oxygenate in the ventilation piece. So we have these uh, fans that bring fresh air in, um, but then we also exhaust the stale contaminated air. So you'll have, you know, volatile organic compounds, high CO2 levels, you know, maybe particulate. Um, and we use that exhaust air to precondition the air that's coming in from the outside. So what we do is we recapture what's called the, the sensible energy or the, the thermal energy, as well as the latent energy or the energy and the humidity. Um, so that's what these membrane heat exchangers from my previous company do. And then the other thing we do is we integrate um, high efficiency, something called VRV, variable refrigerant volume heat pumps inside. Now these exchangers are maybe 80, 85% efficient. So we can't bring it right up to the exact temperature. So we have these heat pumps with these, what are called DX coils or direct expansion coils that bring it in at the exact right temperature and the exact right humidity level. So you're comfortable and you have, you know, all this fresh air to um, live a healthy life. When someone's building a building, what are the kind of the mistakes that they make today in terms of getting to net zero by 2050? Um, like maybe it's not using oxygenate uh, materials and technology, but um, you know, if you paint a picture, we're going through the design process, what are your options? Uh, and then where can people make the right option to make sure that their building is gonna be energy efficient and electric? Yeah, so I'd say on the energy efficiency side, um, it's using you know, the same old technology that we've been using for years. You know, so an example for heating, you know, still a lot of buildings are using, you know, gas fired heaters or gas fired boilers, which, you know, obviously um, are emitting, um, you know, GHG emissions. Um, so now with the, I believe with the whole electrification of building movements, there's going to be huge growth in these heat pumps because you can not only heat, but you can also cool with the same appliance using no carbon-based fuels. So here in Vancouver, I think, you know, close to 90% of our electricity comes from hydroelectric dams. So you can now heat and cool the buildings using heat pumps from energy that comes from these dams. 
And then I think the other key thing is on uh, sort of the health and wellness of buildings. Um, one of the main organizations in the HVAC industry is something called ASHRAE, and they set these minimum codes and standards. So one is called ASHRAE 62, where it says, okay, to meet the legal requirements, you need to have at least 20 cubic feet per minute of air per person in a building. And the reality is these are the minimums. They're actually not that healthy. So I think those are the mistakes that engineers are making is to say, okay, what are the right, what is the right amount of air that you want to bring in? And again, people haven't done it in the past because they're like, oh, if we double ventilation rates, then, you know, I need more energy for heating and cooling that outside air. But now if you're using these high efficiency heat exchangers and low energy fans and these special heat pumps, you can bring it in um, at a very low cost. There's a great book, you know, I recommend for you, Nathan, or, you know, some of your listeners, and it's called Healthy Buildings. And it's by Professor uh, Joseph Allen from the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. And so he calculated that if you increase ventilation rates from 20 CFM to 40 CFM per person, so you double it. And all, now your you know, employees are going to be way more productive. They're going to have you know, less sick days. It only, and this is with not energy efficient technology, it'll cost $40 per person per year. So it's like a no-brainer if you if you're a company and you're like, okay, I want a healthy work environment. We've done the calculations for the oxygen aid, you know, including the increase in capital cost of the equipment. It's $25 per person per year. And I think a lot of companies aren't aware that, hey, our people are working in these environments that aren't that healthy. I think, you know, COVID's helped bring much more awareness around indoor quality. But um, I think that's the other big mistake is just under under ventilating business and not having adequate filtration. Yeah, and you shared a study with me that um, I'll kind of pull up some numbers, but um, it's from the the same school uh, from Harvard, right? That talked about the study of wh- how how productive are people, and they're sixty percent more productive in a green building, and one hundred one percent more productive in an, an enhanced green building. What what like qualifies a building as green and enhanced green? Oh, yeah, that's a tough one to answer. I think in this case, in the Teach Chan, they were looking at two specific measures, and one was carbon dioxide levels, and the other was VOC levels. So they found by you know doubling the ventilation rates, they could get the you know CO two levels under I think seven hundred parts per million. So I think those are are the thresholds. You know, one of the challenges with indoor air quality, um, historically, anyways, is you can't see the air. So you're you're in your home there, and you have no idea is it good air or bad air. And I think one of the big innovations that's coming now is, you know, using um, sensor technology and smart controls is to make the invisible visible. So at Oxygenate, we're working on, we call it an IAQ dashboard. So real time, you can see if you're in a classroom, if you're in an office, a senior care facility, you can see carbon dioxide levels inside. You can see volatile organic compounds. You can see how many air changes per rate. Relative humidity is another huge one. Uh, Dr. Stephanie Taylor, she's been a big advocate of maintaining relative humidity between 40 and 60%, you know, because quite often, particularly in cold, dry climates, it get dry and studies have shown that the virus can spread more in dry climates. So you can see all these things real time to say, okay, I'm a teacher in this classroom. I'm a parent. Okay. I know my kids have healthy air where they're spending most of their day. I'm curious from, uh, you know, we're going to touch on COVID a bit. So from a customer standpoint, when they're coming to you, are they, and especially now in the past two years, are they coming to you because of climate reasons, because of costs, because of COVID? Uh, and how, how has that changed since you started uh, Oxygen Jade? And then how is that kind of like, what do you think for the future is going to look like? 
Yeah, it's been really interesting. So pre, so we started uh, Oxygenate sort of late 2019, you know, a couple of months before the first case hit Wuhan. And at that time, it was all about energy efficiency, GHG reduction, everyone hitting their targets. Then, um, you know, when COVID hit, the pendulum, I say, swung to the right. It was all about health and wellness, safety. And we don't care about energy efficiency. It's like, okay, we're going to use MERV 13 filters or HEPA filters, which we know have an energy penalty. We're going to bring in more outside air. It's going to have an energy penalty, but we've got to get people back to work safely. You know, we've got seniors in these care homes that are dying. And so the pendulum, it was all about health. And I would say now we're starting to see it swing back to the middle, whereas we need both. We need um, healthy buildings, but we need to do it in a low energy way. And I think, um, you know, the technology is out there to, to do it. And we're happy to be kind of part of the solution for that. And then and your technology goes all over the, uh, the U.S., North America, um, you know, Arizona, Columbus, Boston, so different climates. Does the kind of regular climate, like Phoenix obviously is very hot all the time, Boston is colder. Does that affect the technology that you are putting into the box in terms of um, energy efficiency? Yeah. So, um, so one would be these membrane-based heat exchangers. You want that humidity recovery if it's a hot, humid climate zones because it helps dehumidify that outside air. You know, one thing I think people are going to start talking about a lot more is um, climate change and rising humidity levels. So everybody knows temperature levels are rising around the world, but with that humidity levels are rising. Um, you know, we can even even on the west coast here we can feel higher humidity. And most of the energy for air conditioning is actually not cooling, it's dehumidification. And the way that we do it is just brute force. We actually cool it down, condense out the water vapor, and then believe it or not, we actually reheat it, use energy to reheat it to bring it back up to the, the temperature. So finding low energy ways to dehumidify. Um, so yeah, on dry, you know, in the Northeast, cold winters, you want these ERVs. On the West Coast, where humidity levels aren't that bad, we use not membranes, but we use what we call sensible only exchangers. So we're doing heat recovery only, no humidity recovery. The other um, innovation that we're um, implementing is something called free cooling. So there are days, and I'll give you an example of my, my passive house here, and pardon me, as a Canadian, I'll use Celsius, not Fahrenheit. <laughs> but <laughs> there'll, there'll be, you know, uh, a cold spring day or a cold fall day where it's really sunny. So it'll be like, you know, maybe five degrees Celsius outside, but inside my house, it'll be like 30 degrees. And so, you know, what we want to do is not do heat recovery. We actually want to bring that cold air in. So one way to do it is just open your windows and doors. Um, so we get free ventilation, free cooling. But if you're not home, you, you know, you can't do that. Or if there's a forest fire, you don't want to do that. So one way you can do it is through these ventilation systems is you actually have a bypass channel with um, a damper and smart controls that says, we don't want heat recovery today. We just want to bring the cool air into to get this free cooling where we don't actually need to use refrigerants and heat pumps. Um, so that would, I'd say, be specific mainly to the West Coast where we can take advantage of uh, free cooling. How much energy, like what's the percent reduction in terms of with the technology that you just described versus without of it, without it in a building? So it's a hard one to, to answer, believe it or not. Um, and I'll use multi-unit residential buildings as an example. You know, in Canada, um, we've had to use these, what we call ERVs or HRVs for the last 10 years. It's been mandated by the Canadian National Building Code. 
still in the United States, most of the US, you don't need it. And if you're a developer and you're not paying the energy bills and you're not breathing the air, you're going to do whatever the minimum code requirements are. So it's starting to change. You know, Seattle is one of the first cities in the United States where, where we're seeing them mandating ERV, HRVs and multi-unit residential buildings. So it's it's coming. So to me, to go back to your original question, it all depends on what your baseline is. If the baseline is, hey, no ventilation, no energy recovery using this, then there's kind of a huge, um, huge gain. Um, or if it's, hey, we've got ventilation with no energy recovery, you know, it's a different baseline that you're, you're coming from. But yeah, you can you can get, you know, healthy buildings with the, the low energy if you use the technologies that are available today. Yeah, it's an interesting it's an interesting dichotomy, right? Because yeah, the person who's building wants to do it as cheap as possible, but the person who uh, who who pays for the bill wants it to be wants it to be less expensive. And so it's interesting that people who are paying for the building aren't going kind of at that at the first standpoint. The, an example in my field is um, you know we charter we 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 move airplanes, we move cargo across the U.S. Right, and the the pilots aren't the ones paying for the fuel. They know that it's the pass through cost, and so the we're trying to incentivize them to reduce their fuel consumption. Uh, and same thing here. And and so it's interesting. You mentioned ERVs and HRVs really quick for, for someone who's unfamiliar like myself. Like, what is that? Like, what's, what does it stand for? And then how does it play into energy efficiency? Okay, so ERV stands for Energy Recovery Ventilator, or some call it an Enthalpy Recovery Ventilator, and HRV is a Heat Recovery Ventilator. And essentially, there are heat exchangers where you have two air streams pass across uh, some sort of media. So in the ERVs, it's a membrane made from a paper or polymer. And in HRV, it's typically aluminum or plastic. And so the HRV recovers heat only, and the ERV recovers heat and humidity um, through that. The membrane's a bit like Gore-Tex. So, you know, if you're out skiing and you got your Gore-Tex jacket on, it's a selective membrane. So it keeps the heat in. When it's raining, it keeps the liquid water out. But when you sweat, it's a selective membrane that allows that water vapor from the sweat to escape the jacket so that you're more comfortable. So these membranes and ERVs are are very similar to uh, to a Gore-Tex. James and I continue the discussion and dive into building codes and what individuals can do to incentivize energy efficiency and electrification after the break. Are you interested in living a net zero life, but you don't know where to start? The Net Zero Life team is working with a few of our colleagues to offer a free sustainability coaching session for a select number of followers. Check us out on Instagram at the Net Zero Life and send us a DM to learn more. What countries or states in the states in the U.S. countries worldwide? Where are the codes most restrictive um, in terms of that they're going to help? They're restrictive that they force the developer to use energy efficient or electric technology, and where are they the least kind of like the most open and developers can do whatever they want? And, and what can is there anything? that people, individuals, or homeowners, or multi-like like developers can do to incentivize more movement towards energy efficiency and electrification? Yeah, first, so first I'll maybe start outside North America. So I spent a fair bit of time in Europe and in Japan. Um, and I would say the Europeans and the Asians are, you know, far ahead of both the Americans and the Canadians. Like, completely honest, some of the technology that we're developing at Oxygen 8, they've been doing in Europe for the last five years. And we're just, you know, bringing it to to North America, you know, within, let's say the United States, um, you know, clearly down the West Coast, so Washington, Oregon, California, California with Title 24 really are taking a lead, you know, for our business energy recovery, the quickest paybacks are where you have extreme climates. 
So, so we love, you know, New York, Boston's great because you got hot, humid summers, cold, dry winters, you know, down in San Francisco, San Diego, it's a pretty mild, moderate climate. There still is a payback there, but it's, um, you know, not as great as, you know, down in Florida or, you know, maybe up in, in New York. Um, and in the Northeast, there's a real big electrification movement, Massachusetts, New York State, Connecticut. Um, and so it'll be interesting. It's, it seems to be very much driven at the state level. It'll be, I'm, as a Canadian, I'm curious to see with the new administration, um, whether we'll start to see that roll out throughout, uh, throughout all of the United States. Are you closely following the, the infrastructure bill happening in the U.S.? Is that, will that impact the work that you guys do? Yeah, potentially. We're hoping both in Canada and the United States that um, there'll be money there, not only for new construction, but retrofits. When, you know, if we want to, you know, tackle climate change, it's one thing just to do it with with new buildings. To me, that's a no brainer because the technology exists today, either through incentives or codes. You know, we need to, you know, encourage developers to do this because it's the right thing to do. And it's going to save money for the, you know, the tenants or the occupants of the building. You know, the tougher nut to crack is going to be all the existing buildings out there. And so in our case, it's it's challenging, you know, where, okay, we don't have ventilation. You know, where are we going to put the unit? Um, where are we going to put the ductwork? It can be done, but it's, it's more difficult than if it's uh, new construction. Yeah, there's this idea, kind of a stranded asset. A great example is the Kingdome in Seattle, which was this, uh, you know, the Seattle Seahawks football stadium, which they demolished and then built you know, what's now Lumen Field, but previously CenturyLink. And so you had two stadiums. Uh, you were paying for two stadiums, even though only one existed. And so I think the Kingdom is a great idea of the stranded asset. For buildings, how do you go to the owner of a building and say, hey, um, your existing infrastructure, it, it really is a stranded asset and you need to now remove it uh, and and put in this new the new equipment. Are they are you going to do it from a climate standpoint or from a cost? Is it both? Like why why would they make the change? Yeah. So what we're seeing now, and it's mainly COVID driven. We just did a really cool project in Manhattan High End Steakhouse where the owner of the restaurant was. I got to get my customers back in. I want to make sure my servers and and cooking staff are safe. So he retrofitted the building and put in a what we call a DOAS, a dedicated outside air system, so 100% fresh air, energy recovery, and heat pumps. And he's marketing, you know, trying to get people back into his restaurant. So I think, you know, part of it's been driven there. You know, we, when we started Oxygen 8, we saw that, you know, the HVAC industry has been around for over a hundred years. It's these big rooftop air handling units, you know, ducts running through the whole building. And when we looked to Europe and Asia, um, they had a completely different approach. It was what we call decentralized ventilation. So instead of one big 20,000 CFM unit up on the roof, you know, let's have, you know, five, 4,000 CFM units spread throughout the building. And the whole premise was, if you're the owner of a building, would you rather, and you're in an urban city like Seattle or New York, would you want HVAC equipment on the roof or why not have a beautiful, you know, rooftop terrace or, you know, solar panels? You know, so that was the value proposition. And now we're seeing a lot of developers are saying, yeah, we want green space up there. We want healthy air inside the building, but if people want to get outside, let's give them space up on the roof to go. But then we found that there's all these other benefits to decentralizing, you know, HVAC systems. One is you got shorter duct runs, so you have less pressure drop, less energy consumption, you know, for for the fans. Um, you know, at 5 p.m., let's say most of the people have gone, but you got you know a few people working in this, you know, boardroom or office, and a central system. You got to keep the whole thing running. Now, if we've got a decentralized system, we can have only that zone running, giving fresh air where we can turn down, you know, using occupancy sensors, 
turned down. So there's energy savings there. So we believe there's going to be a whole kind of movement um, towards decentralized HVAC systems instead of central. It's a different sell though. Like traditionally we sell to the mechanical engineers, mechanical contractors. Now it's, you know, the architects and the owners of the building that we got to show them the, you know, the value proposition of decentralizing HVAC. How much of, of implementing the technology is from like, like you need to make more innovations in terms of the product itself versus just you have to bring it to the market. The market needs to accept it and you have to kind of like get to all the customers that are begging for it. Yes. Yeah, so, you know, what we did to get product to market very quickly, I would say there's not a ton of innovation in terms of, you know, breakthrough technology with IP. We look to what's going on in the rest of the world. We're using all the latest, you know, components and technology and, and putting it together in, in an integrated system that nobody's really doing in North America. You know, the next step for us is to, you know, invest in, you know, things like smart control systems. So, you know, something in, in our industry called demand control ventilation. So now using CO2 sensors, we can slow speeds of fans down or increase it depending on what the CO2 levels are inside the building or things like the IAQ dashboard. But yeah, you really, with these kind of newer technologies, if the codes aren't there mandating it, if they aren't prescriptive codes, then you've got to educate the owners of the buildings, you know, the companies who are leasing out the buildings um, or the architects designing the buildings that, hey, this is a new way to, uh, to ventilate and do energy recovery. Um, the other big change that we're seeing on the code side is historically, most of the codes have been what I would call prescriptive. So it says, okay, you need a minimum of 50% total energy recovery or the example I used earlier, you need a minimum of you know, 20 CFM per person. Now we're moving more towards what I call performance-based codes. So if you're the you know, um, engineer designing the building, it's you need to hit this energy target. It's a little bit like passive house. You, know, you gotta be you know, less than 15 kilowatt hours per square meter per year. And you can use whatever technology you want. Um, and using energy modeling, you need to show, you know, the government that, okay, we've met these minimum energy requirements um, and, you know, same on the ventilation side. So that's the, the big shift that we're seeing on the, on the code side. Are there any states in the U.S. that are not moving towards this way? Like if there are people, if you could put like a group of people in, in a state and convince the policymakers to do X, Y, or Z, are there certain target areas you would go after? Yeah, it seems in the middle of the U.S. and parts of down in the South, um, and, and I don't know if it's for political reasons, but just, you know, hasn't embraced it maybe, you know, because they're producing, you know, shale gas or oil. Um, you know, we're definitely targeting the U.S. states that are more progressive. So West Coast, Northeast have advanced kind of building codes and uh, have the climate zones that have the, the quickest payback period. Do the, you mentioned humidity before and kind of like extreme climates, do the Southern states, is there less of an appeal? Is there less impact because that they're kind of more singular in terms of their climate? No, huge. If you look at the payback for energy recovery, the Southeast um, is, has the quickest payback period because of that dehumidification um, and because of the hot temperatures. So yeah, not only can you reduce the amount of energy, but you can downsize your whole HVAC system if you're using energy recovery. Yeah, so down in um, you know Georgia, Florida, um, yeah, it's it's a no-brainer going with energy recovery. I'd love to talk a little bit about kind of the values at Oxygenate. Is sustainability wrapped in kind of the ethos of the company? And are, when people are coming to work there, are they? 
were they like engineers and love the innovation? Were they uh, in their bios, they are hooked on sustainability and want to help implement it throughout the world, or they're just excited about being a startup, maybe all of the above. What is it like to be there? Yeah, there's nothing that we, you know, explicitly say that, you know, you know, you have to be a, you know, a green believer, you know, you've got to be a nerdy engineer. Um, but I think just like-minded people attract each other. And, you know, we're now 26 employees. We just had a three-day strategic planning offsite up at, at Whistler um, and here in Vancouver. And I looked around. It was interesting, the 26, nine of the people I'd never met in person before um, because of the pandemic. So it was cool getting uh, everyone together. But um, what I saw, and even though it wasn't part of our you know, recruiting process, interview process. It's just everyone was like-minded. They all believe in what we're doing. We all kind of have the same vision of where we're going. Yeah, like our marketing manager, Katrina, she's a yoga instructor. She's been a longtime believer in sustainability kind of with her family. Um, yeah, so I think it just sort of works out that way. It's not really planned. It just kind of ends up going that way. What does success look like for, for you personally, for Oxenage Jade, and then how does that impact the world? Oh, such a big question. <laughs> Huge. Yeah, you know, for me, I've really um, kind of now fully immersed in this kind of healthy building movement. Um, and so for me, you know, having a world where, you know, our kids in the classroom, you know, my mom and dad in the senior care facility, we just know it's a, a healthy place and we're, you know, achieving our climate change goals. So bringing those two together, um, you know, would be be great. Um, we're building, you know, great strategic partners. It's tough being a small company. We're, we're, you know, we're up against the kind of the big players. So aligning ourselves with uh, larger companies that can kind of help us get there. Because um, again, as a small company, it's, it's challenging sometimes. Is there a future where you guys are one of the big companies as well? Yeah, I hope so. We're, um, we've definitely got the tailwinds behind us. You know, sometimes you're good and sometimes you're lucky. And I would say, you know, we're one of the few companies that have benefited as a result of COVID just with more, our whole industry really has just more awareness around indoor air quality. Um, so yeah, we're happy with the, the market that we're going to be in. And my, my previous two companies, I said it was your typical, you know, entrepreneurial roller coaster, lots of kind of ups and downs and, you know, where are you going to make it? And it's still early days with oxygenated. It's only been two years, but I was telling the team we're on the rocket ship. It's just one direction right now. And it's, it's great. It's fun. I'm always looking over my shoulder to see, you know, what, what could go wrong, but um, you know, so far it's just been fun and, yeah, and fantastic and building a great team yeah sounds like a dream uh can i bring going back to that days to keep pmg where you're wondering hey like i'm looking for something different it sounds like you found it uh hard to say uh, you know obviously i can't speak for you but um it just sounds awesome i'd love to move to you personally a little bit um was there anything, I mean, you talked about meeting your your co-founder in Vancouver and talking about sustainability there. Maybe tell me a little bit about what that was like in terms of like the first conversations around sustainability and climate change. Yeah, so the very first, this is going back 25, maybe even 30 years, was an old friend of mine from you know high school in Toronto. And he, um, he opened up Toronto's first, I'll call it kind of an eco store, a green store. So he was selling you know, um, environmentally friendly cleaning products. Uh, he was selling t-shirts made of hemp. And so he was a real kind of eco pioneer. And um, 
he was the one, first one that sort of turned me on to that. And the reason why I tell that story was, you know, a few years ago, um, his name's Rob Grant, had these two stores in Toronto called Grassroots. And uh, he sent out a thing on LinkedIn that he was shutting them down. And I was like, oh, Rob, you know, after, you know, 20, 25 years of having these businesses. And I said, Rob, you know, I feel badly you're shutting the business down. I said, James, don't be sad for me. He says, now, you know, you know, all the big box stores are selling all these products and we can't compete against them. But, you know, I'm happy that I was part of that kind of change of, you know, companies bringing that to, to the market. So I'd say Rob was kind of one of the first people to educate me around kind of sustainability. And then I think, yeah, coming to, to Vancouver and you know, the whole Ballard experience. And it just seems out here in Vancouver anyways, there's a really strong clean tech community. Um, and people have been, you know, great advisors for me. You know, I'm an engineer who kind of sort of fell into sort of the world of sustainability and, and learned from others. Are you a mentor now to other clean tech companies that are getting up off the ground in Vancouver? And what is the industry like? Uh, you know, San Francisco, obviously, I can I think about tech and all that stuff. But being an American, I don't have the same image for Vancouver. So for people who are not familiar with the industry there, what is it like? What are people working on? What kind of problems do they love to solve? Yeah. So, you know, like I mentioned, I've been lucky. I've had great mentors in my career. Um, you know, so now that I'm sort of getting towards the end of my career, um, you know, giving back. And so I've got a few early stage companies I'm working with. One's a really cool one related to what we're doing at Oxygenate. It's a company called Zoa, T-Z-O-A. And uh, they've developed this cool indoor air quality sensor where it mounts inside the dock and on your phone or an app, you can see real time all the IAQ parameters. CEO, Kevin's a young guy, um, and just helping him with kind of all the mistakes I've kind of made along the way. Um, so I'm an angel investor in that and, and helping him out. But yeah, the Vancouver Clean Tech community, it's, it's unbelievable. We've got um, a couple different companies working on CO2 capture right now. There's one company called Savante where they're, you know, industrial um, and a gas, uh, they're pulling the CO2 out. Um, there's another company called Carbon uh, Capture where taking CO2 out of the airs. Um, so a lot of, um, yeah, really interesting innovation in kind of all areas. So, but we talked earlier about the hydrogen fuel cell business and how it crashed. It's having a full renaissance right now. Um, it's unbelievable to, you know, for me who got involved in that 20 years ago, seeing it come back strong. And it's going to be tough on cars, but buses, heavy duty vehicles, um, they're finding other ways of using hydrogen. So it's great to see, you know, these cycles and um, some of this technology. You know, when you're competing against the internal combustion engine and battery that have been around for 100 years and nobody wants to pay anymore and it's got to have the same lifetime of performance, it, it takes time. Um, so it's great to see industries like that uh, finally have their day. Totally. And we interviewed Zero Avia uh, back, I think that was episode three, uh, but they're building hydrogen electric airplane and i know aviation is super excited about hydrogen episode two no tani is definitely episode three um and so super obviously super excited about hydrogen as well um do you ever think about kind of doing the elon musk thing where you've got like spacex on one side and tesla on the other you have oxygen on one like on tuesday thursday and then another hydrogen fuel cell company on uh monday thursday friday yeah, it'd be a great place to get to where, um, you know, I could be an advisor to kind of oxygenate and, and do some other startups. You know, Elon Musk, is an interesting guy. I was, you know, one of the first guys in Vancouver to get a Tesla under 10 years ago and admire him for kind of his innovation and, and, and really what he's done for climate change. He, uh, he's not a big believer in hydrogen fuel cells. He calls them fool cells. And I'm just like, really, Elon? I'm like, 
you know, be open-minded. Um, you know, we got to pursue different technology paths, you know, electric electrification of vehicles may be great for cars, but fuel cells may be great for other applications. So uh, a little bit disappointed in his not open-mindedness, but um, he's done some, uh, he's really done some uh, amazing things, but yeah, it'd be a great place for me to get in the next few years. If I've got a couple different startups I'm working with. Yeah, I'm excited. I, I mean, I'm, if I was a betting person, I would bet that that's definitely the case, given your track record. Um, kind of more, again, like uh, for you personally, obviously you built a net zero house that we talked about, but are there any other, since becoming into like a clean tech uh, leader in the field, like as a CEO and as a founder, are there any things that you feel self-conscious about in your daily life that you either made a change or are like, you know, one day you, you're thinking, hey, maybe I'll do this a little bit differently, but not today? Yeah, the one thing I've been thinking about recently is just around um, kind of packaging. And, you know, obviously up here we've got recycling and um, composting, but just, you know, every week we've got a couple bags of garbage still go out. And um, so I've been watching, you know, there's a whole movement right now around zero waste lifestyle. We, we now get, um, there's a, a company in Vancouver Hill called Fresh Prep, where all the food comes up in reusable packaging and we send it back. And yeah, I see some of these people, there's this one lady who she could fit four years of her garbage in like one little mason jar. And uh, to me, that'd be a fun challenge. I've got two teenage boys. And to me, that'd be a, you know, sort of a fun challenge for the whole house to see, you know, when we go grocery shopping, you know, let's bring our own jars to fill up, you know, my granola from my breakfast in the morning as opposed to getting in the, the cardboard and the plastic. Um, yeah, so that's something on, I don't, don't know if I'd ever start a business on it, but I think for our family, it'd be a sort of a fun and kind of important thing to do. Is there one book podcast, like blog post or whatever that you wish every person in the world would read in terms of in in relation to climate change? Yeah. The one I'm going to put in, it's, I would say it's partially climate change, but it's, um, more on the healthy building side is the joe allen book healthy buildings it's it's a great read and uh, a real kind of eye-opener for me so i'd say that's the the one book uh the one book i haven't read yet but it's on my read is um you know the new bill gates book on uh, on climate change and i you know he you know bill i think is in your backyard there he's another guy i totally look up to where um, you know, obviously one of the wealthiest men in the world, you know, inventing Excel and Word and, you know, what he's doing for so many causes and in particular climate change, you know, creating awareness with that book. He's got a venture capital con- fund called uh, Breakthrough Technology Ventures, where he's investing. I think there's three or four Vancouver clean tech companies here he's invested in. So, um, yeah, commend, you know, him and others for kind of what they're doing. And then the other one is just all the entrepreneurs out there. It's it's tough being an entrepreneur. Like I compare back to my KPMG days, you know, a lot of job security, you're making good money, you know, not a lot of risk, but not a lot of upside. Um, um, but those entrepreneurs who are kind of taking a risk and not doing it for only the money, but doing it because they want to make a positive change on the world. So those are, those are some of my heroes. Would you go back and make the same decisions again? Um, absolutely. I got no regrets. You know, KPMG for me was a great learning experience. It was working in automotive industry, aerospace industry, you know, food and packaging. Here, here was a guy in my late twenties, early thirties, you know, working with, you know, senior level executives, um, learned a ton, but, um, there's no way I would go back to doing that. It's, it's fun being an entrepreneur while it is, it's a bit risky at times. And, uh, you've got to have a family that, 
is willing to support you and know that I probably would be like Elon Musk where, you know, I'm borrowing money from my friends to pay for my kids' groceries. But I told my wife, um, you know, if we need to mortgage our house for D-Point, I'm prepared to do it. And she was kind of on side with it. So, you know, not everyone has that level of risk tolerance. That's awesome. Um, a few final questions for you. Uh, one is Oxygen Jade hiring, and two for people who like our perspective. Uh, what, what would you say to them in terms of like what you're looking for and, and values and thoughts? Yeah, no, thanks for that. Yeah, it's, it's hard to believe. So a year ago we were five employees, and now we're 26. Um, so we've been growing really quickly. We'll be 30 before the end of the year. Um, we're just building a new manufacturing facility in Vancouver. Um, so we'll be hiring engineers, production workers. Um, yeah, so if anybody's interested, please reach out. Um, so it's james at oxygenate.ca. And I think for me, um, when I hire, I'm looking more for the softer skills. So, you know, are people uh, passionate about what they do? Um, do they create interpersonal skills? Um, you know, do they have good work ethic? You know, the reality is I, I'm big on work life balance, but there's days where, you know, we're working kind of long hours and are people willing to do that? And do they have that entrepreneurial spirit? Are they willing to kind of take risks? And all of our employees are shareholders in the company. We've got an employee stock option plan. So it's great that, um, you know, everyone can participate if, if we're successful. And then I promised a friend I would ask this question, who's your favorite manufacturing rep company? Oh, my favorite man. That's an easy one. So air reps, actually there's, there's, there's two, but uh, air reps is our rep in uh, Washington state as well as Oregon state and then Olympic international up here in British Columbia. And both of them are just kicking ass. They're uh, number one and two. Uh, all of our reps are great, um, but those are the two. And um, it's a great place to live. I would say Washington state in the U S and British Columbia and Canada are probably two of the most progressive you know, in terms of building codes and owners kind of getting both energy efficiency and, and healthy buildings. So lucky where we are. Amazing. Thank you so much for the time. Uh, I had a great time. I hope you did as well. Thanks, Nathan. That was great. Thanks again to James for joining us today. You can connect with James via email james at oxygenate.ca or follow him on LinkedIn. Get in touch with me and the team via all of our social medias by following at the Net Zero Life. If you prefer email, Nathan at the Net Zero Life works great too. As a reminder, everything I say is my own opinion and is no way reflective of my employer. It's also not meant to be investment advice. This episode was produced by Tawny Levitt, the original music composed by Mitch Bernstein from Climb On. Thanks again for listening. Until next week, I'm Nathan Svee, and this is the Net Zero Life.